Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to continue Article 8 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the negative statements, those teachings we reject and condemn, because they are against Scripture with regard to the teaching on the person of Christ. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Nate Hill. You've heard him on here before. He is the pastor of St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you, Pastor Smith. It's great to be with you today. Uh, great honor to have you back on. And we're going to jump in because we got a lot to cover in terms of the negative statements here. This is a very important article, as was the previous article, which this flows forth from, as we've talked about on here flows forth from when we saw the the errors and issues with the sacramentarians, the reformed theologians in terms of the Lord's Supper, what we realized really was at stake was it was bad Christology. There was an error in the teaching on the person of Christ himself. And I found this quote as I was going through and preparing and just kind of reading through things again for myself. And this comes from Dr. David Scare, who's a professor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, and he writes in this book, Getting Into the Story of Concord, this quote about this article that I think is really, really good. He says this, Lutheran doctrine is Christocentric throughout, and therefore it is absolutely essential that the correct doctrine about the person of Christ be maintained. I just love that quote. That is exactly what is at stake here. We are very much focused on the person of Christ as guiding all of our theology as Lutheran Christians, drawn from the pure teachings of Holy Scripture itself. And so we got to maintain this pure teaching on Christ, which impacts, as we see, not only the Lord's Supper, but so many other aspects of our confession of faith as well. And so what we really want to be sure to get here is who is Christ, and we want to reject and condemn those errors that are incorrect about who Christ is, the person of Christ. And so to kind of springboard us into what we're covering today with these negative statements, you and I, Pastor Hill, are kind of chatting before we went on air here that there's a way to do good Christology and there's a way to do bad Christology. And I really kind of like the way that you phrase that. And so go ahead and to springboard us into these negative statements, which is bad Christology, bad talk about the person of Christ. Give us some good Christology that'll help set this up for us here. So good Christology is centered on the right scriptural understanding of how Christ, the eternal Word of God, is both God and man, and how the divine nature and the human nature relate to one another, how their qualities are shared, and how they relate to the work of Christ, the most important of which is his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection and ascension for our salvation. 
So there are a few ways to look at Christology and ways to go about it. Like you mentioned, we could look at the bad and then contrast the bad with the good. But let's maybe take a different run at Christology today based on good teaching. And that's by means of trying to figure out how it is that the natures of Christ, his human and divine nature, affect his person. We can talk about in theological terms, and I know this is getting deep and we'll be having some Latin terms here. We can talk about three genera that are important to the way that we think about theology. Genera is the plural of the Latin word genus, which means kind. And there are three kinds of ways that the person of Christ is affected by his two natures. So let's talk about that first one first, which is called the genus idiomaticum. That's a big one. Idioma, it's the Latin word for attribute. And here in the genus idiomaticum, what we mean is that the attributes that Christ has in each nature, his human nature and his divine nature, are communicated into the person of Christ himself. And what we mean by that specifically is that there are certain things that Christ can do, for lack of a better way of saying it, according to the fact that he's a human and certain things that Christ can do according to the fact that he is divine. So, for example, according to the fact that he is a human, he breathes, he sleeps, he eats, he suffers, he feels pain, ultimately he has the ability to die. And according to the fact that he is fully divine, he has all of the properties that God the Father has, for his deity is completely full, just as the Father is in the Holy Spirit. He is omniscient, he is omnipresent. He is all-powerful. So all of those things in this manner of speaking, this genus idiomaticum, mean that the attributes of the divinity and the humanity both come into the person of Christ and enables him, for lack of a better way to speak, to do what a human does and to do what God himself does. That is really well framed for us. Thank you for setting that up for us. And how does that then springboard us into what we're going to see here on the terms of the bad theology at work or the bad Christology at work? Well, what we're going to see in bad Christology is, first off, there is not an understanding that the human nature and the divine nature come together into the person of Christ in exactly the way we talked about. One way of going wrong we'll talk about later is Nestorius. He goes and he says, no, the divine nature and the human nature, they're almost like two halves of Christ. There's not much interplay between the two and others. Eutyches came and said that, no, maybe the person of Christ is kind of an average between God and man, a higher power than man, but a lower power than God. So instead, when we realize that Christ does things according to his human nature or according to his divine nature, it helps us to rightly understand those passages that might at first lead someone who wasn't thinking in the fullness of the witness of Scripture down the road of either of those two wrong Christologies. So, for example, when Jesus thirsts upon the cross, well, one might say, well, he's thirsty, he can't be fully God, or He's thirsty because he's just a man up there, and it's only the human part of him that is suffering on the cross. Well, we can say, no, he thirsts upon the cross according to his human nature. Yet at the same time, upon the cross, he can see even you and I in his perfect knowledge as ones for whom he's dying and suffering there. He's not limited by his human nature because according to his divine nature, he can see all that God sees. So understanding this first way of the attributes of the human divine nature going into Jesus is so important for us to keep us as a hedge from going down some of the wrong paths that we're going to talk about later. Yeah, as we so often talk about, the Christian life is one that is lived in tension, and 
Martin Luther talks about distinguishing law and gospel is kind of riding on your donkey. And there's two ways that you can fall off and neither way is good. And I think that that applies to so many of the tensions that we find ourselves in. And as you say, we have to maintain this balance in order to have a good Christology, a good confession. So let's go ahead then and jump into these negative statements and work some of this out and see what is at stake when we start heading down these sorts of errors. So I'm just going to take the first paragraph here, I think from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, a publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is the epitome of the formula of Concord. Article 8, the person of Christ. And we are picking up with the negative statements, the contrary false doctrine about the person of Christ, paragraph 19. We reject and condemn as contrary to God's word and our simple, pure Christian faith all the following erroneous articles if they are taught. I'm going to stop there, and it seems like we're not covering a lot already, but I think there's a couple things that we want to highlight here. One, I've kind of made the promise to our listeners that I'll continually remind as we go through the negative statements here that it's important that these are the things we do not agree with. All right, sometimes it will specifically say we reject and condemn, but here it covers it in that first paragraph of this section, and then it's just going to give a lot of statements. And so if you kind of come in at different points, you'll, you'll maybe just hear a statement and you say, well, wait a minute, we don't agree with that. You're right. We don't agree with that. These are teachings that we reject and condemn. So keep that in mind as we read through these paragraphs today. The other is this phrase at the end of paragraph 19 here, if they are taught, is really something new, Pastor Hill. I did a brief look through all the other articles and I was trying to recall, I have not seen this phrasing in any of the other negative statements, but they include it here, if they are taught. What's that all about? It struck me as odd as well. It's a subjective sounding statement, which isn't what we're used to encountering in the confessions. I think there are a couple of things going on here. First, I believe that the Concordists are trying to lay out a comprehensive list of every way you could possibly get Christology wrong so that they would keep themselves from being falsely accused of any of these errors later, whether or not any of their actual opponents held to these errors. So this is a way of them laying out all of the possible ways that may not even have been manifest in their time or ours that you could misunderstand it as a defense against someone throwing an accusation at them that they held these things. And also the fact that this phrase, if they are taught, is an important reminder to me that not every error we encounter is taught in all times and places in Christian history. And also not every error at the time of the Reformers is today. Not every error that we have today was present in the time of the Reformers. So We remember that we Christians in every age and generation were called to confess the fullness of God's Word against a unique cultural and theological backdrop that's present in our own day. So the Church continues confessing, the Church continues going back to the source of all sources, the norm of all norms, the Holy Word of God, to look at what our culture and world is saying and saying what God's Word says against those things and what God's Word says relative to those things. So When we find that some of these aren't taught today or we can't find a modern analog to some of these heresies, to me, that's a cause to rejoice that some of these have passed away with time. 
Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think really helpful for us in understanding this is a phrase, I wish I had it exactly how he said it, but CFW Walther once said something to the effect of, there's one thing that is sure that throughout all the changes of history, scripture has refuted every error and continue to confess the truth. Something to that effect. That is kind of my paraphrased version of what Walther said, but I think that supports what you're saying here as well. And also, I even want to take it a little bit further that when we recognize that there's really nothing new under the sun, a lot of times the errors that we do see in our day and age that are quote unquote new are really manifestations and twisting of old errors. And so we certainly see that at work in history and in our own time as well. And so what it boils down to, to grossly oversimplify it here is there is the confession of truth as scripture teaches it to us. And then there is error, things that are against scripture. And we see all sorts of different twistings of that, and it kind of manifests itself in different ways. But then when it comes up and other twisting and errors as it manifests itself, we continue to confess the same truth, and it will refute all errors, as I poorly kind of paraphrased Walther there. All right, great thought there, but let's go ahead and push forward and get uh, paragraph 20 here. And this is negative statement number one. God and man in Christ are not one person. But the Son of God is one, and the Son of Man another, as Nestorius raved. What is this raving of Nestorius all about, Pastor Hill? Well, Nestorius was famous for sending off the heresy of Nestorianism, which held that there's not any communication of the natures in the person of Christ. So essentially, that there is Jesus the man and Jesus the God, and that they are independent entities one from another, perhaps sharing a body, I suppose you could say, although I don't even know that no stories would go that far. And they don't interplay with one another. There's no communion between the human nature and the divine nature. This is the idea that was talked about previously about two boards being glued together that can just as easily be re-separated with a crowbar. The idea that when you look at Christ at any moment, perhaps he's in man mode at one time and in God mode at another. It's almost similar to the Trinitarian heresy of modalism, where God is seen as Father in the Old Testament, Son in the New, and Holy Spirit in the Age of the Church, or something like that, as if it's tag team type of work. No, we don't have a a tag team between Jesus the man and Jesus God. No, instead we have a unique Christ, who is both God and man in one person. I think I said this on the first episode covering this article as well. You often see what I would say is an historian error come out in a really beloved Christmas carol, Away in a Manger, right? It says, no crying he makes. And again, I don't mean to squash and trample all over well-loved Christmas carols, but what it seems to be conveying there is that there's no way the divine son of God laying in a manger would be crying, right? Or causing his mother a sleepless night or anything of those things that our babies would experience because he's God. And this ultimately, if we continue down that same sort of thinking that there's clearly something special about Jesus, he has a divine nature, but that it kind of pulls away or is completely separate from his human nature, then what we get is a wrong confession of Christ. And as we've covered really extensively on this show the last couple of episodes, it can lead us to a really bad understanding when it comes to our salvation then. Exactly. And he is truly in his human nature, like us in every way, but with one difference without sin. And that's according to his act of obedience. And perhaps when the writers of Away in a Manger wrote it, perhaps they thought that if he were to cry, he would be sinning. 
but we know, of course, that a, a crying child is just calling out for his next meal. So I suppose we wouldn't say no crying he makes, but surely no hitting of his siblings he would do or, or other, other things like that. So we make sure that we have a very human Christ, a uh, fully human Christ, yet we don't go down the road also of making him into a sinfully human Christ either. Yeah. Well, and just to spin off this a little bit too, I think that's one of the great comforts of our faith when we maintain this right teaching about Christ is that we see that Jesus did cry. We certainly saw him weep. Scripture makes that very clear at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, right, before he raises him from the dead to prefigure what he's going to do for all of humanity. And so it's this beautiful comfort of the true confession of Scripture to know that Jesus did experience sorrow. He experienced everything that we have experienced, and yet he did it without sin. And so he can cry and not be sinful, but it is just true sorrow. And that unites him to us in a very beautiful, beautiful way that he takes all of that sorrow to the cross then with him as well. And all of that too is put down in his death, in his victory and his resurrection. It's just a beautiful confession when we get this right. All right, ready to move on? Absolutely. All right, paragraph 21 then, and this is negative theses or negative statement number two. The divine and human natures have been mingled with each other into one essence, and the human nature has been changed into the deity, as Eutyches fanatically asserted. All right, so yet again, don't agree with this, and it seems like, as we sometimes say on this show, it seems like we're getting a little heavy-handed and the snark is kind of coming out here in the writing of our Lutheran confessions. So we've got the raving Nestorius and the fanatic Eutyches, all right? Uh, so go ahead and break down what Eutyches is all fanatic about. Oh, Eutyches is so fanatic that he can't get the verbiage correct about his Christology that we have two natures and one person. He turns the two natures into one person, but then there's only one nature afterwards. It's such a radical mixing of the two that you can no longer recognize the natures. So similarly, in our Trinitarian theology, the idea is one God, three persons. Here, he's jumbled it all up within the person of Christ to such that the human and the divine nature have become the same thing. And also what's interesting here is Eutyches was teaching that the human nature of Christ is swallowed up by the divine nature, as if it either is humanity being taken into divinity, or that it's divinity doing away with humanity. It really ends up going down the road of what is called monophysitism, another one of these isms today, where the idea is that in Christ you have one nature, that there's only one nature in Christ that's compounded and it can just give us this wrong notion that Christ, again, is not like us anymore because he is a mixture of human and divine. And therefore, he doesn't know full humanity because either his humanity has been taken up a level by adding divinity to it, and he doesn't know full divinity because his divinity has been kicked down a notch by the humanity being incorporated. So it's almost like taking two foods that are good in and of themselves and jumbling them up into something that's just a mixture that resembles either. This really robs us of the comfort that we have in Christ, right? I like how you stated that it kind of kicks the deity of Jesus down a little bit or down a notch and that he doesn't really experience what we experience in humanity. Now, it is true that Christ is not like us, right? And that's a beautiful comfort to the gospel. But yet when God tells us that he is like us in every way in his humanity and that he is fully God, 
that's where the full comfort comes in because only Christ, who is the perfect union of these things, fully God and fully man, that brings us the gospel. And when we start mingling this together and making him less than fully divine and doesn't really experience what we have experienced, well, then that robs us of the comfort to know that Christ knew exactly what we feel in our hurt and pain and sorrow in this world. And he took all of that to the cross. Absolutely. And one of the things that has been impressed upon me, I suppose, over the last couple of years is I realized that earlier in my life, I was so comfortable with the notion that Jesus is, of course, my Lord and my God. But it's been impressed upon me that he is also my brother. And this notion of Christ, not only as my God and my Lord, but also as my brother in humanity, for me, is a source of great strength. It's a great source of strength in discipleship, a great source of strength in just comfort of knowing that he knows all that I know. But I don't think we talk enough about this idea of Christ as our brother who has blazed the path all the way to heaven through his grave and his empty tomb and has essentially paved the way for us to follow in the footsteps in our human flesh that his humanity is already gone. Yeah, I think that's probably connected with a lot of what we see that was around at the formation of America, really. This enlightenment deism that kind of came in, rationalism and so forth, that acknowledged a God, but that he was somehow distant and far off. And we've certainly highlighted that Christian Smith idea, moralistic therapeutic deism, that's probably, broadly speaking, American Christianity and its understanding of God today, right? And I think that this sort of error plays into that sort of thinking as well. And I'm with you. We tend to be okay with thinking about God as our Lord and Savior. It's kind of a deist idea. There is a God, but he's kind of off there and distant. And and we don't tend to be as comfortable in thinking about God as our brother who walked with us in this world, in the human flesh, and took all of that to the cross with him. That when we start to see, once again, what we want to have is the balance. We don't, we don't want to go too far to the other way either and just simply talk about the human Jesus. But what we want to do as highlight is that, yes, he is Lord over all creation and yet also our brother. And that's where the full comfort comes in. Absolutely. We don't want to buddy Jesus as so many people in our Epicurean type of libertine culture have done. But we also don't want a Savior who seems so distant to us that he's unrelatable. And the real Christ is the answer to both of those problems. Yeah, that's the other error that I was looking for is the buddy Christ kind of idea. And what we're seeing here, too, is as we kind of throw out deism and epicureanism and things like that, is that once again, these errors, they start to kind of come in and they're all kind of mingled together themselves. And what we have ultimately is poor teaching on the person of Christ that manifests itself in different ways. And what refutes it all is what scripture confesses. And so that's what we're concerned with. And to get another one of those, I'm going to push us forward again here and try and get one more before our break here. And this one's going to be kind of a new one that hasn't been highlighted in this specific article yet. We've talked a lot about Nestorius and Eutyches earlier, especially in reference as we went through the affirmative statements. But here in negative statement number three, paragraph 22, we hear about Arius. So let me go ahead and read this. Christ is not true, natural, and eternal God as Arius held and then parenthetical, blasphemed. More than just he held, he blasphemed this. So so what was Arius blaspheming? Well, Arius is probably the prime heretic of the early church. Arius, who comes in and really first tears down Christ, and, and not only tears down Christ, but 
really tears down the Holy Trinity itself, because Arius' view is that God, or God the Father, I suppose he would say, to even talk in Trinitarian terms, is so abstract and so singular that it's completely impossible that the Son, the Logos, Christ, could be co-eternal with him. Uh, Same thing with the Holy Spirit. He almost has this radical monotheism. He holds to a radical monotheism that just doesn't leave room for a trinity, number one. And if you don't have room for a trinity, then you have to figure out, well, what do we make of, of Jesus Christ in the scriptures? And essentially, he turns Jesus Christ into an intermediate being. Someone, again, sort of like Eutychianism between God and man, but more so in the fact that he believes that the man Jesus was adopted, say it is baptism, into becoming the Christ. So, again, this is probably a prime heresy that has tentacles in many different directions, but Arianism was the bane of the early church, and the heresy that we see that left its clearest mark on the church actually in a positive way in giving us the occasion to confess the truth really in the ancient creed. Yeah, it was Arius primarily that the Athanasian Creed comes about, which is just a beautiful confession of our faith with regards to the person of Christ and indeed the whole Trinity. He was the bane of the early church, and there's lots of stories. There's the story of Arius that gets slapped by St. Nicholas at the council there, although that probably didn't happen. But yeah, he was certainly a false teacher that was the bane of the early church. And as highlighted here, his main teaching was that Christ is not true God. He's not the eternal God. We're going to take a break here, but when we come back, we're going to pick up the error that is on the other side that denies the humanity of Christ. So please join us right after this. You're listening to Concord Matters. Hi, this is Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas, and host of Sharper Iron from KFUO. I'd love to have you join us in our current study of St. Paul's Letter to the Romans. The series is called The Righteousness of God for You. Throughout this marvelous epistle, the apostle takes us back to the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. He sharpens our understanding of basic terms that our pastors introduced to us in confirmation class, terms like sin and grace, law and gospel, justification and sanctification, faith and righteousness, and much more. But this isn't just an academic exercise. Rather, at the center of the doctrine taught in the epistle to the Romans stands Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for sinners. If you studied Romans in the past, don't worry about getting bored. Your faith will be sharpened even more. In his preface to Romans, Dr. Martin Luther put it like this. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Check out the Sharper Iron podcast from KFUO to taste and see from the Book of Romans that the Lord is good because his righteousness is for us. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Nate Hill, who is the pastor of St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. 
And we are pushing forward here in Article 8 from the epitome of the formula of Concord, looking at the negative statements, the teachings we reject and condemn with regard to the person of Christ. And as we were talking right before the break, in paragraph 22, we have the error of Arius, who was that bane of the early church, who argued that Jesus in his capacity as the Son was not co-eternal with God, that he wasn't true God. And now picking up with paragraph 23, we have the error on the other side with Marcion. So let's pick up with paragraph 23. This is negative statement number four, and it says, Christ did not have a true human nature consisting of body and soul as Marcion imagined. Well, Pastor Hill, that seems a bit softer than the others. We've had the raving Nestorius, the fanatical Eutyches, and the blasphemous Arius. But now to deny the true human nature is just imaginative. But go ahead and help us flesh out this error. Marcion was an interesting heretic. He's probably best known for the fact that he rejected the Old Testament. So if you ever hear someone in a Bible study saying, oh, that's just Old Testament stuff, some well-read layperson may say, oh, you're just a Marcionite. We, of course, recognize that the Old and New Testament are all the inspired and inerrant Word of God. So we, on the one hand, reject the area of Marcion by keeping the Old Testament as part of our worship and, and part of our canon. But the other thing about Marcion is that Marcion had Gnostic tendencies, and Gnosticism is the idea that there is some kind of divinely given secret message or knowledge that will hold the key for a higher life. It talks about this idea of really escaping that which is fleshly and going into that which is more spiritual and higher. And Marcion believed that the God that was told about in the Old Testament, the true God, of course, was actually a false deity in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, as Christ comes and God is further spoken about, that that's the real God, because in his mind, that was a more sympathetic approach to God to his own Gnostic beliefs. So he would naturally say that Christ doesn't have a human nature consisting of a body and soul, because to a Gnostic, someone having this kind of human nature, it would be something that would not be very spiritual for Christ to have. So he would treat Jesus almost as a a spiritual guide with the secret knowledge to give. And really, he finds himself far outside of Orthodox Christianity. I like how you highlighted denying Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus himself says, you search the scriptures, which would have been what we know as the Old Testament when he says this. He says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you'll find life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Christ is the focus of the whole Old Testament. And then the Gospel of John clearly brings that in, in that this eternal word of God takes on human flesh and makes us dwelling among us. And that's who Christ is. That's, that's clearly what it confesses in Scripture about Christ. And then this spins off into a lot of ideas that we get about ourselves as well. I like how you highlighted the Gnosticism as well that what we get is that we start to think of ourselves and our true essential selves as just a soul. It's all about the spiritual. It's all about ascending up into heaven and just being a soul floating on the clouds or whatever kind of ideas we get about that. And we just deny the fleshliness of how God created us, how he intends for us to be for all eternity at the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And that ultimately is always centered on Christ. Once again, we see here, if you get Christ wrong, you get a whole lot of other aspects of theology wrong as well. Absolutely. All right. Great coverage there. All right. Now we're going to push forward and really make some headway here. So this is picking up with paragraph 24, but we're going to go through paragraph 26. 
and these are all kind of connected together here. So this is negative statements five, six, and seven. The personal union only makes the names and titles common to both natures. To say God is man, man is God, is only a phrase and mode of speaking. For divinity, they say, in deed and truth, has nothing in common with the humanity, nor the humanity with the deity. It is nothing but words, communicatio verbalis, when it is said, the Son of God died for the sins of the world, or the Son of Man has become almighty. All right, a lot going on there, very heady stuff, but go ahead and help us understand what is this going on here with the two natures again and the communication of the natures. We've highlighted some of this, especially in the affirmative statements, but go ahead and give us some understanding to this theology here. So again, these three negative statements probably fall most in line under Nestorianism, I suppose, if we have to categorize them according to the heresies we talked about already. But essentially what they say together is, that we refute the idea that the union of God and man in Christ is just something we talk about without a corresponding reality in the person of Christ, as if we're saying, well, yeah, Christ is God as a manner of speaking. The best analogy that I can come up with for this is rulers that have been powerful over millennia have often tended to ascribe deific type of titles for themselves. So, for example, If you were in ancient Rome, Caesar was not only Caesar the king, but Caesar was regarded as divine. Now, I think everyone knows that he was just ascribing that divinity to himself out of pride and political ambition and manipulation. That's not what we have with Christ. We don't have Christ being just a man who, as a matter of speaking, we call God. But what we have in Christ is true. He doesn't have an unearned honorific title, so to speak. When we say he is God, that is something that is his because of his nature, because of who he truly is in the person of Christ. And it's not just something we say to him to be respectful without a corresponding reality. I think you've highlighted a really excellent point from history there that you see this not just certainly with Caesar, as as you highlighted for us, but certainly With a lot of ancient cultures, we certainly see this in Japan and Persia and just a lot of the ancient cultures as well, that there's this deity attached to the understanding of the ruler of that country or land or empire, whatever it may be. And sometimes we may think that we're a little past this in our modern era because we just have a different understanding of idols as well. You know, that a lot of times you see that manifest in ancient cultures with carved images and things like that. But we have no less idols today. We worship money or or sex or power or fame and those sorts of things every bit as much as these idols and a whole lot of other things can play into that as well. And that's a discussion for another time. But certainly we can also fall into this kind of error with thinking, especially as we maybe are prone to do at this time of pandemic and so forth, of putting a little too much trust into our leaders to just save us from all that ails us, right? When really only God can do that. Exactly. The the experts, so to speak, have taken the place of God. And on the pandemic, that's just been something that's been impressed upon me, is that the way we're reacting, at least in regard to the true, just deep fear that people have of this, just shows us how far culturally we've gotten away from God even being a part of our cultural understanding of the way the world works. I can, as a Christian, secure in my faith and secure in my Savior and the knowledge of what lies beyond death for me. I feel like I can look at a crisis like this differently than someone who 
has done away with all of those notions in the midst of a culture that's largely done away with it and sees only this life. Right. And especially as we take a look at the human Christ, and as you said so very well for us, I just want to re-highlight that it, it's not that Christ ascribed this divine nature to himself. It actually is one of his attributes. He is the Son of God. And so we can't have that wrong understanding or that false trust, if you will, that we tend to put in some humans that we give this deity attachment to. And now we're going to see the other side of that, if you will, again, kind of the error on the other side, as we pick up with paragraphs 27, 28, and 29, as regards to the human nature. And so this is negative statements 8, 9, and 10. The human nature in Christ has become an infinite essence in the same way as the divinity, It is present everywhere in the same way as the divine nature because of this essential power and property communicated to and poured out into the human nature and separated from God. The human nature has become equal to and like the divine nature in its substance and essence or in its essential properties. Christ's human nature is locally extended to all places of heaven and earth, which should not even be said about the divine nature. All right. Again, this is very heady stuff here. So I I just need you to break this down for us and help us understand what is it that we're confessing as the error with these three things, these three statements that we do not agree with. Yeah, these are easily the three most difficult paragraphs for me in this article. But as I've pondered them, I suppose what's going on here is the issue at hand is that we're talking about the essence of the human nature becoming infinite. So I think what's happening is we're confessing clearly that what is essential to the human nature are the things that belong to humanity. So the fact that Christ dies is according to his human nature, the fact that he eats, as we spoke about earlier. What is essential to the divine nature is his property of being infinite. So we're trying to say that what each nature brings to the table in Christ, so to speak, remains what belongs to that nature itself. And again, if the divine nature were turning the human nature into something infinite, really is it a human nature any longer? Perhaps, again, it it seeks being truly human, that nature in Christ, and that's what we're avoiding. We're avoiding anything that's making Christ into anything less than truly human and anything less than truly divine. So the sense that I get out of that is that we would certainly say that Christ is truly present in the Lord's Supper. He's truly present bodily in flesh and blood, but the fact that he's present at every altar, everywhere throughout the world where the supper is celebrated, that omnipresence is according to his divine nature, and the fleshliness of it being his true body and blood is according to his human nature. Without those two things, the nature's bleeding into one another. We're seeing here, and you're you're highlighting so well for us, as our previous guests have on this article as well, is that you kind of feel white knuckles all the way through this article of like, wow, it is really easy to fall into some sort of error here. And to hold this tension, what you have to do is just firmly hold to what scripture clearly confesses to us. And I feel like I've said it every week as we've gone through this article is that what you have to do is just simply say, this is what it says. I may not understand it, It may transcend our human understanding, especially as we are under the corruption of our sinful minds and so forth. But this is what we confess, and we hold this tension. Don't let things bleed into one another. Separate things that don't belong separated, because what we lose is Christ and who he is, what he has accomplished for us for our salvation when we start mingling these things up. And so then to push forward, 
picking up paragraph 30, I think this is probably a corrective to the previous three here, but kind of a further expanse upon it as well. So this is negative statement 11. Because of the character of the human nature, it is impossible for Christ to be in more than one place at the same time, much less everywhere with his body. I think you just started to hit on this with your example of the Lord's Supper. And again, this whole article flows forth from the confession in Article 7 about the Lord's Supper. And so this is a statement we do not agree with. And this is what the sacramentarians, the Reformed theologians, are saying. There's no way that Christ can be truly present in the bread and wine, right? That's right. They're saying his flesh has ascended to the geographic right hand of God the Father in heaven, and therefore he can't come back down here right now to be at your Lutheran altar, would be what they would be saying. And we're saying, no, 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 that's not the case. It's not that the human nature limits what the divine nature in Christ can do. It's that the human nature provides the true humanity, the body and blood that's there in the supper for us. And then a connected issue would also be what we receive the fruits from that cross in the Lord's Supper, but even what Jesus himself experienced there on the cross seems to be what the next couple paragraphs are. So let me go ahead and read those, and we'll discuss those. So those these are paragraphs 31 and 32, negative statements 12 and 13. Only the mere humanity has suffered for us and redeemed us. And God's Son in the suffering had actually no communion with the humanity, as though it did not concern him. Christ is present with us on earth in the word and sacraments and in all our troubles, only according to his divinity. This presence does not apply to his human nature. They also say that after having redeemed us by his suffering and death, Christ has nothing to do with us any longer on earth. Now, that last statement, especially I I already brought up earlier in the show, this deism idea that has just plagued American Christianity that Christ is somehow separate and far off, that it's all about this spiritual existence, which we've highlighted quite a lot, is definitely part of that sacramentarian reform theology. But for them, it's playing out in these statements. Once again, we do not agree with them on what Christ experienced on the cross and then also how he's with us now. Exactly. This first notion that they're talking about here, it's almost as if they're looking up at Christ and saying, I know this looks bad, but don't worry, it's not actually hurting God. It's just hurting this man of Jesus, or just the human part of Jesus himself. And again, the center of our theology is that Jesus Christ, true God and true man, has died in your place on the cross. And if he were just man, it's one man with one man sacrifice. I suppose a soldier can jump on a grenade for a soldier or maybe a couple that are there in the area, but it's certainly not sufficient for all people across all time and place. But when we know that God himself in Christ dies, the Father doesn't die, the Spirit doesn't die, but God in Christ dies on the cross, it makes that sacrifice immensely and overabundantly sufficient for all Christians throughout time and history. And then on the other hand, we have just clearly the sacramentarian error articulated for us saying, no, it's just a spiritual remembrance that we have here. The human nature is not there. So when you take the divine nature out of Christ on the cross and you take the human nature out of Christ in the supper, I suppose we found the worst of both worlds. Indeed. Although it seems to get a little worse here with the with the preceding paragraph. So let's push forward a little more as we want to try and cover this. But you're doing an excellent job of breaking this all down so that we can understand what this very heady stuff is going on. But these next two paragraphs, I know you said that probably the tougher ones are already there. But for me, wrapping my mind around 
these errors confessed here are just crazy. So this is paragraphs 33 and 34, negative statements 14 and 15. God's son assumed the human nature. After he laid aside the form of a servant, he does not perform all the works of his omnipotence in, through, and with his human nature. He only performs some and only in the place where his human nature is located. According to his human nature, he is not at all capable of almighty power and other attributes of the divine nature, which goes against Christ's clear declaration in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and of St. Paul in Colossians 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, these these just to wrap my mind around, and maybe this is what you say, I, I haven't done enough study of this on myself, but maybe this is what you were saying, that the confessors are simply laying out, look, these are all the possible errors, and so I don't know that these are specific errors that were being confessed at that time, or maybe even that we would see today, but to make these arguments, it's like, have you ever read scripture? <laughs> Do you realize that we can ascribe these things to his human attributes or his divine attributes, but they're clearly present and work with him. It's not like he's incapable of these things. And so again, just my mind wrapping around these things, it's like, who would ever confess this? I don't know. What are your thoughts, Pastor Hill? Yeah, I think the same. I'm not sure who would confess this today. Again, not sure if they confessed it then. But in these two points, what I'm seeing here is, first is this false mixing of the notion of Christ's humanity and Christ's state of humiliation. So when you think about this in the second article of the Creed, we talk almost as steps going down to a basement and steps coming back up. We talk about the state of Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. So part of his humiliation that he takes on human flesh, but his human flesh itself is not the humiliation. So in his state of exaltation, he's resurrected from the grave. He's laid aside the form of a servant at that point because the humiliation is over. He doesn't lay aside his human flesh. I think you'd mentioned a couple weeks ago that people sometimes think that he ascends only in his spirit, leaving his body behind on his earth. I think there are maybe even some that think he's resurrected only in spirit and with his body left in the grave or somewhere else. We're saying what's radically different is that his humanity is retained, never to, to be laid aside by him. The fact that he takes on human flesh is related to his humiliation, but it's not the same thing because it extends beyond that time. And and then it kind of doubles down here in the errors with with the I'm just going to read it and let you explain it here, okay. lest we run out of time. So this is paragraph 35, and I'm going to go through paragraph 38. So this is negative statements 16, 17, 18, and 19. Once again, I think these are connected enough that we can cover them together. Greater and more power is given to Christ according to his humanity than to all angels and other creatures, but he has no communion with God's almighty power, nor has this been given to him. Now, I'm just going to pause there. I'm sorry. Again, have you ever read scripture? I mean, Jesus clearly says, I and the Father are one. Okay, anyway, all right, enough of my soapboxes. Back to the reading here. Again, I'm still in negative statement 16, paragraph 35. Therefore, they make up a middle power, a power between God's almighty power and the power of other creatures given to Christ according to his humanity by the exaltation. This would be less than God's almighty power and greater than that of other creatures. Christ, according to his human mind, has a certain limit as to how much he has to know. He knows only what is fitting and needful for him to know for his office as judge. Christ does not yet have a perfect knowledge of God and all his works, yet it is written about him in Colossians 2 verse 3, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is impossible for Christ, according to his human mind, to know what has been from eternity, what at present is occurring everywhere, and what will be in eternity. Uh, Again, just Sean's soapbox here. I feel like I say this on the show a lot. It's really hard not to be Lutheran. I mean, it just feels like they work so hard. If you feel like this is really heady, mind-bending stuff, it is. I feel like you have to work really hard to explain away Scripture. And the beauty of being a Lutheran is we say, we just confess, even though our sinful, broken minds, human understanding cannot always fully understand it, that is easier to say this is what God has given us to know than to try and explain all these things away as if it makes it more understandable, but it really makes it more confusing to me. I don't know. What do you think, Pastor Hill? Yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the things that's difficult for some people when they, they approach theological writings like this is they say, oh my goodness, if Jesus is this complicated, I'm out. And we just need to remind ourselves that when someone's not weighed down by questions like this, we don't need to burden them necessarily with all of the refutation of questions that they don't have. We can rejoice in the simple faith and the fact that they confess that simple faith from the Word. But yeah, this these paragraphs here are very interesting because this is where we finally get to the point in this article where we're talking clearly about turning Jesus into some kind of a demigod or maybe a superhuman. But here it is that I think what's going on is people are misunderstanding the person of Jesus related to the work of Jesus Christ. So we've all seen the diagram in catechesis where you've got a great chasm between God and man. It looks like the Grand Canyon. And that chasm we label as sin. And then the diagram shows the cross of Jesus Christ bridging through that chasm and showing that the bridge between God and man is Jesus Christ and his work, what he's done. This false view almost turns the person of Christ into a bridge between God and man as far as our natures are concerned. And that's certainly not it. He's not halfway between divinity and humanity here. His divinity isn't weighed down and encumbered by his humanity so that it can't reach its full potential. Instead, we know that he's both at the same time. Now, the one thing that is mentioned here in paragraph 36, I think, is interesting. It talks about he has a limit to how much he is to know. We confess that there's not a limit to what Christ knows. And I think, obviously, the Concordus would have left room for the understanding that there is one thing that the Son doesn't know. Matthew twenty four thirty six tells us that concerning that day and hour, the hour of his return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So they're not trying to confess something against that. They're just saying that we shouldn't imagine that Christ, as he walks this earth, has an incomplete picture of what's going on, or that he's laid down his omniscience just because he's taken on humanity that would cloud that. And with just a minute left here, I'm going to push us forward, read the last paragraph, and allow you to kind of bring this together and give us your parting thoughts. So this is paragraph 39, negative statement 20. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, is wrongly taught, as are other such verses. This passage is interpreted and blasphemously perverted to say that all power in heaven and on earth was restored, i.e. delivered again to Christ according to the divine nature, at the resurrection and his ascension to heaven. This argues as though Christ had also, according to his divinity, laid this power aside and abandoned it in his state of humiliation. 
Not only the words of Christ's testament are perverted by this teaching, but also the way is prepared for the accursed Arian heresy. Ultimately, Christ's eternal deity is denied, and so Christ and with him our salvation are entirely lost if this false doctrine is not firmly opposed from the permanent foundation of the divine word and our simple Christian Catholic faith. Once again, I think that this brings it all together for us really beautifully at the end that ultimately what's at stake here is a true confession of Christ from Scripture. So go ahead and give us your parting thoughts here with just about 30 seconds left. I think the final thought is that when we encounter Christ in the Scriptures and we see him in what appears to our human eyes in a state of weakness, that it's not a weakness that he's exhibiting by nature, but it's a willful setting aside of the divine power that's always and forever within him. So when we see him go to the cross, he's not one who has been unjustly given into death and had no way of resisting it. Instead, we see him going willingly there, even though he has all of the power to resist it. Instead, he doesn't let the cup pass from him. He drinks it down to the dregs for you so that you wouldn't have to suffer all of those things in his place. Instead, he takes them for you. So when we look at Jesus and we see him in weakness, realize that that's just what our eyes see. And what we understand truly is that full divine power is always present with him. What a great confession for us from Pastor Nate Hill, who is the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. We thank you very much for joining us for Concord Matters today and talking us through this confession of the gospel with regard to the person of Christ. Well, ultimately, it's the confession of Christ as Scripture gives it to us. And thank you for that beautiful confession, Pastor Nate Hill. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. Until next time, keep confessing, church.